Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is the fourth installment in our In Their Own Words oral history series. And today's guest is Dr. Susan Stafford, professor and dean emerita from the University of Minnesota, and also a past president of AIBS. As always with these, you can read along with the text version in the pages of Bioscience, and I'll include a link in the show notes. But for now, let's go to the interview. Uh, Dr. Stafford, thank you very much for joining me today. You are very welcome. When was the first time that you knew that you wanted to work in the life sciences? You know, James, it's really interesting because actually I would have to say I didn't. When I came out of high school, my two loves were, like, I love science, but my main focus was mathematics and art. So, you know, being analytical, I thought, well, how do you combine those? And I logically came up with architecture. So I merrily launched into my undergraduate program in architecture only to find out very quickly that, um, I miss the objectivity of mathematics and science. I remember working very, very hard on a design only to have one of my critics or major professors say, oh, this is really good, and another one to say, oh, this is really terrible. So I would ask the ones where they would say, well, <laughs> this was terrible. I'd say, well, what are your criteria to judge, you know, whether something is good or bad? And they just sort of looked at me and shook their head and they said, well, you're just going to have to feel it. And so that's when I decided that I would keep art as a hobby and an avocation and I would really turn more to math and science. Um, and that's, that's what I did. And it, it worked out beautifully. And have you continued doing art? I have. It's my hobby. I love to, I've done some Chinese water uh, color painting and most recently I'm doing quilting. And it's interesting because some of my friends say, oh, I hate picking out the colors of the fabric. And I just sort of say to myself, you know, that's the most fun. So, and then you use your math by figuring out how to assemble the different designs and how to mesh them all together into something pleasing. So, um, yeah, it, it's, been a, it's been a nice journey. I, I uh, finished up with an undergraduate major in biology. I think I was three credits shy of a double major in math. And then I got a master's in quantitative ecology and a PhD in statistics. And I really always liked the application of quantitative methods to natural resource issues. You know, how can we use mathematical models to help understand better the world around us? And what would you say is the biggest surprise of your career? You know, the biggest surprise, James, is how much fun I've had. Um, <laughs> I, I have really enjoyed the great variety of projects that I've gotten to work on and the people that I have had the honor and pleasure of working with have been fantastic. So I, you know, I really, I don't know what I expected when I started, 
but I certainly don't think in my wildest imagination could have imagined how enjoyable and how much fun I had during my career. And what's the biggest difference between the way that science is conducted now and the way that it was when you first entered the field? Oh, gosh. You know, there are, there are a lot of differences. Um, but I started at Oregon State University as an assistant professor, tenure track. My title was consulting statistician. And I was in the Department of Forest Sciences, but I was the only woman faculty member in that department. And that, that really wasn't an issue for me because I had often been one of the few um, women students in math or science classes. Uh, so, you know, being in a faculty where I was the only woman it was it was fine. I, I went in with my eyes open and it was there was never a problem. But as time evolved, we started to realize that there should be more emphasis on mentoring. And that was a word uh, back in the early 80s when it wasn't as common as it is now. So we had this departmental retreat and the topic on the agenda was mentoring. And they brought someone in, and he was really, in all honesty, pretty terrible. But I sat quietly, and I listened. And then as the discussion just rambled on, I got up and I left the room. And when I came back, they, my male colleagues all turned and looked at me, and they said, you know, Susan, we have got this figured out. And I said, oh, well, that's great. And they said, you can be the mentor. You can mentor all our students. Now, you have to realize, James, that over 50% of our graduate students, it was a graduate department, were women. So I looked at them, and I was, I was just sort of dumbstruck. And then they added, before, because I hadn't responded, they added, Oh, and by the way, you know, our wives, they're, they're really uneasy and very nervous of us working one-on-one -on -one in these close relationships, like in a mentoring relationship with our women students. So I took a breath and I said, well, first of all, if mentoring is going to work, it has to be everybody's responsibility. It can't just be my responsibility. I'm happy to work with our students. I already work with all of our students, both men and women. But if mentoring truly is going to work, we, as a department, we all have to embrace it and we all have to step up and say this is important. And they were somewhat nodding. <laughs> and, I guess I couldn't resist. I looked at them eyeball to eyeball around the table. And I said, you know that other thing about the worry with your wives? Rest assured, you can go and tell them that that is not going to be anything that they have to worry about because, quite frankly, our graduate students are not that desperate. <laughs> 
Um, and then somehow they changed the topic and called for a coffee break. So we, we moved on. But so, you know, in answer to your question, I think really it's the, the number of women that are in the profession today, both in the faculty ranks and all the way along. So. That's a fantastic answer. Um, and I guess the next question as phrased was a little bit loaded, but um, I'll, I'll rephrase it to, you know, how have professional societies played a role in your career? Um, and, and kind of what's the biggest event from that? You know, when I was a student and a graduate student, and during the formative of my state, my formative stages of my career, I would have to honestly say that I, I really wasn't that involved with professional societies. I for whatever reason, maybe because I was mentoring all the students. Um, but um, as I proceeded in my career and I assumed administrative posts, department head at Colorado State and then dean at the University of Minnesota, it became much more a part of my overall focus. And I remember one time um, my journey with AIBS, perhaps, if you will, I, I had taken my lunch that day and I had gone in St. Paul to walk around the lake, Lake Como, and my phone rang. And this lovely person called and asked if I would be interested in running for president of AIBS. And I was so taken aback. I said, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. But I'm sure you must have the wrong number. <laughs> so, but um, I did say yes. And lo and behold, I did uh, get more involved. And I, I have really enjoyed working on the, the board of directors for AIBS. And I think, you know, people are asked to serve on boards quite frequently. And I think you ask yourself, is this something that I want to do? But for me, the the main reason that I agreed to serve on boards, besides the opportunity to work on some important issues, was the opportunity to work with some really, really fine people that you may not rub shoulders with in your your own little sphere of the world. And that was clearly, clearly the case for me. I got to work with people of the likes of Joe Travis and Jim Collins and John Tobin, Judy Skog, John Burris, oh gosh, Muriel Poston, Karen Schmeling, Charlie Fenster, who I think is now president of AIBS, Eric Nagy, um, Al Savitsky, Stuart Pickett, Michael Cato, you know, and the, and the list goes on and on. And then to work with the staff of AIBS, to work with the staff of an organization like AIBS, the staff is exceptional. When I was active on the board, we had Sherry Potter. I think now it's Sherry Karasik, uh, Susan Musante, Joel Wagner, and Scott Glisson and Rob Grob. And Scott is now CEO and Rob is executive director. 
So, you know, I, I had the opportunity to work with a very fine group of individuals, and we did a lot of fun things. We, we undertook some pretty important um, efforts. One was we, we initiated a strategic planning uh, exercise. And most people, I'd have to say, when you hear the word strategic planning, they just roll their eyes. But what was good about our effort is that it resulted in some strategic action. And we engaged the community in something that we called at the time a leadership in biology project. And we asked a cross-section of leaders and opinion leaders the three three questions that the board came up with. One was, in order for life sciences to thrive, what opportunities are too great to miss? What transformation in practice and infrastructure are needed? And what are the challenges that must be overcome? And what we were able to do is we worked with a sociologist colleague of mine, and she helped us put together a guided interview so that we all learned not only to listen to the answers, but we learned how to ask the questions. And that exercise was was really a, a fun thing because we were able to ask a group of individuals across the professional spectrum from graduate students and postdocs all the way through esteemed leaders in the field. And we were, one of the questions that we asked was what is the role that an organization like AIBF uh, could play? And we got a lot of really good information. We wrote some papers about it. Um, but, you know, four, four themes probably emerged as I think back. And one was how do we ensure a dynamic and thriving science community that's collaborative, and here's the important word, nimble, nimble to be able to respond to emerging challenges. How do we build public understanding of science as a tool to be used by society? The whole idea of a citizen scientist. How do we build an effective and diverse professional community? And then lastly, how do we inform public policy through effective relationships with policymakers? So we may have done this during my tenure uh, as president of AIBF, but all of these really resonate still yet today. And if I look at the threads of work that AIBF is conducting, I see a lot of continuity and congruence among what we did then and, and the kinds of things that are going forward. So that, um, that effort to have a, a, the opportunity to reach out to the community like that, and then the way we decided to report back is we brought these themes to the general community and we invited a cross-section of individuals and we held an intergenerational, cross-generational conversation to sort of just tease things out further. These things never come up with definitive closed answers, but I think you advance 
the understanding of the issue every time you have a very engaged and far-ranging conversation. And that was something that we were able to do, and it was probably one of the most enjoyable aspects of my time with um, AIBS. And I worked most closely with AIBS among all the other professional societies that I, I had had a membership with. Yeah, and I, I think it's a testament to the value of that effort that the things you cited sound so familiar to me today mm-hmm. and so much like the, the work that AIBS is doing on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, changing direction slightly, what would you say was your worst day on the job? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, if I'm being brutally honest, then probably my worst day on the job was when the University of Minnesota provost called me in to tell me that my lovely, esteemed, wonderful College of Natural Resources was going to be merged with the College of Agriculture as part of a strategic repositioning effort. Now, I I fully subscribe to the idea that presidents and provosts get to to write the agenda for their universities. But what I found so ironic was that when I had interviewed four years before, and I asked that very question because I said, you know, colleges of natural resources and colleges of agriculture are being merged all over the country. And if that is your intent here, please tell me now, because I love Colorado. Um, But I was assured at the time by the then provost that, oh, no, this was never going to happen at the University of Minnesota. But the further irony was that the provost that I asked that question of later became the next president who led the strategic repositioning effort. Um, So it was was somewhat... um, I guess ironic is the most polite way to say it, but uh, but I also understand fully that things change. But really, James, if you're going to ask me what was the worst day, I need to finish that conversation by saying, how do you take something like that and turn it into something positive? And so I called, once I heard this news, I called an impromptu faculty meeting it was a Friday and it was at four o'clock and everybody came and it didn't, they didn't come because I called an impromptu faculty meeting. It was because that was the caliber of the faculty that we had, that they were still working at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And I wanted them to hear this from me, not through the rumor mill. And they all came. And I told them of the president's decision to merge our college with agriculture. But then what I did is I was able to call each of them by name. And again, that was the kind of college that we had. And I spoke to each one in front of all the others about what I admired about each one. I congratulated them on some specific success. I, uh, spoke of a contribution that they'd made or a recent accomplishment. And it was really a great meeting because everybody left there feeling respected and valued. And that was very important to me because even though our 
venerable hundred-year-old college was losing perhaps its own identity, I wanted to make sure that our faculty, our students, and our alums were not losing their identity. And I didn't want them to feel any diminishment in any way. And I did that because, to me, that was my responsibility as dean. So the front half of the morning of the day was the worst, but it turned into a very good day. And then moving on from the worst, what would you say was your best day on the job so far? Uh, you know, I've really, I've really had been fortunate enough to have a lot of really good days. But one, one in particular that would be fun to tell you about is that when I was department head of forest sciences at Colorado State University, I began working with the alums to build an endowment for Pingree Park. Pingree Park was a rigorous summer camp program that was conducted in a beautiful setting in the Rocky Mountains at 9,000 feet elevation. And all our students did a program at Pingree. But it was getting to be very expensive to maintain and to support this. So I wanted to figure out a way to keep the experience but make it more affordable and available. And so I started to work with our development director, and we thought, what if we were to be able to create an endowment for Pingree? And this was something that hadn't really been done there before, and it was also one of my first foyers into um, fundraising and development. So we brought together alums from as far back as the 1930s and 40s. And we invited them all to come up to Pingree for a few days. And in the first morning, as I was sort of outlining the logistics of how the reunion was going to go. We had field trips, we had presentations. And then I said, and oh, by the way, we're going to have, we reserve space for everybody in the dormitories, which I think you'll find very, you know, satisfactory. Well, at the first coffee break, no joke, I had half a dozen crestfallen alums from those early years, in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And they said, do we have to live in the dorms? Can't we live in the old student cabins? And I said, well, you know, these old student cabins are, they're not in the best of shape. That's why we needed to build these dormitories. They're, they're leaky. They, you know, there's outdoor plumbing. The, the planks don't meet. It's drafty in the middle of the night at 9,000 feet. They said, we know. So I said, okay. So we set them up in the cabins they got they went back they remembered which cabin they lived in during their time at Pingree and they had an absolute ball the next day you they they were just ecstatic the they had so much fun and so much excitement just reliving their days so we continued the Pingree reunion every every year but then I moved on to the University of Minnesota, and I had, I'd had some success raising some money, but 
there was still a long way to go. But at least um, I'd gotten the ball rolling. Well, it was several years later. I was at, already in my position at the University of Minnesota. And out of the blue, I got a call from someone from the Colorado State Foundation. And they said, we have a message to deliver to you. We had an alum who wants to remain anonymous, but they specifically said that with their gift, they wanted to have someone call me and let me know that the endowment had reached a million dollars. They'd met their goal. And I was so touched, and I asked who it was. They said, nope, nope, I, anonymity here. We cannot divulge that. But I was able to discern that this must have been one of those individuals who had come to one of those early Pingree reunions. And it was really heartwarming to, you know, to see the effect that you, you were able to bring about. Um, and I was, I was happy, I was touched, and I was really, really thrilled for those students at Colorado State because their future excitement and experiences at Pingree were going to be able to continue into perpetuity. So that was a really good day. It sounds like a, that's a fantastic story all around. It, it sounds like a lot of success. <laughs> uh, do you have any other favorite stories from your career? Well, I think one of them was that um, I have a couple that perhaps I can tell you about. One was when I came to the University of Minnesota as dean, I took all my department head and unit leaders out for breakfast. There's there's a lot of food that gets um, enjoyed in Minnesota, James. I don't know about whether you know, but there's there's quite a food culture in, in Minnesota. So it was very appropriate that we all went out for breakfast. And then I had them around the table, and I looked at them, and I said, now, I would really like to learn about the departments and the units in our college. So I asked them, would you tell me about, and they all started to sit up taller, about the department to your left? And they, they looked at me. But what I was trying to do was to model the behavior that I wanted to see. We were going to be stronger by working together. And part of working together was understanding the strengths of those around us. And for individuals to hear others speak of what they admired in departments other than them, their own, I thought was a good way to start. And it did. You know, a lot of competition, a little competition can be very healthy, but working together and not stabbing people in the back, you can accomplish far more. So that was, that was one, one fun story. Another fun story was that I inherited a department at Minnesota where the students could adopt faculty. There were so many more faculty than students, it was, it was silly. The student-faculty ratio was so out of whack that we, we really needed to do something about that. And when my department head in that de department left, 
I did not have any money to do a national search. But I did have a sitting faculty member who had just competed successfully for a department head position at another prestigious university. So he came to me and he said, well, what are your plans for the department? And I thought that was a very valid, very valid question. It was certainly one that I would have asked had I been in his position. And I answered him in this way. I said, if you envision the future of this department by looking in the rear view mirror, let me help you pack to your next job. But if you would work with me to envision a new future for this department with all of its potential, I will do everything I can to work with you and make this successful. And he stayed. And we did. We developed two new majors, and we developed them in partnership with two other prominent colleges within the University of Minnesota. And we wrote the curricula so that our programming, our coursework, could also be used by their students so that it was really a win-win all the way around. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I guess the days that I enjoy are the days that I, I help to work with other people and bring out the best in them. Uh, that, that truly is what I found and, and have always found great enjoyment and pleasure from. Yeah, that's a theme that seems to come out through many of your answers. <laughs> um, what's, what's the funniest single thing that you, that's happened in your career? You know, when... I finished my PhD, I, I got my PhD from the State University of New York Environmental Science and Forestry. At, and my dad was a, a professor of industrial engineering and management at Syracuse University and I was home. And the phone rang and I went and answered the phone and they said, may I please speak to Dr. Stafford? And without even thinking, I said, which one? <laughs> <laughs> and dad, my dad loved that story. I can't tell you how many times he enjoyed telling that one, but it was a funny one and it was good. <laughs> it is. Uh, what event from your career do you think will be best remembered long into the future? I think most likely it's going to be my work in research information management for the NSF funded long-term ecological research LTER network. I had such fortuitous timing in my career. I was a, a newly minted PhD, tenure track assistant professor in forest science at Oregon State. But at the time that the NSF funded LTER uh, network was created, and my arrival at OSU really coincided with the first year that the H.J. Andrews was going to be established as an LTER site. When I came to Oregon State the year before, I realized that it was important that we create a way to work with our graduate students and our faculty to manage the data that they were collecting from their overall research. So I put together 
the Quantitative Sciences Group, the QSG, and that was to help address statistical consulting and data management and data archive, archival, really, for the whole department. So it made a lot of sense that we would bring that exact same philosophy to stewarding the H.J. Andrews data. Well, it didn't end there because the Andrews was one of the first sites in the initial cohort of uh, funded six sites. And so the effort that we were able to institute at the Andrews became a model for other sites within the network. And I'm really proud to say that the H.J. Andrews is, is still going strong today. And in fact, in 2020, next year, the whole LTER network, which is now over two dozen sites from the Arctic to the Antarctic, will be entering its fourth decade. And what makes me smile even uh, more broadly is that many of those initial approaches, those protocols for information management, as well as that basic philosophy that we instituted with first the quantitative sciences group, uh, and then at the Andrews, and then within that first cohort of six sites, they're still part of the overall LTER information management enterprise. So I'm I'm very I'm proud of that, and um, it certainly wasn't a single person effort because the whole research information management activities over these four decades have been one of the best examples of collaborative work among individuals and professionals within the network. So it was my pleasure to be associated with that. And, and thank you for pulling back the curtain on that because I, you know I think we we talk about the LTER network a fair amount on the show. Um, and obviously in bioscience, but I don't think it's something that you know our listeners and readers are necessarily um, you know familiar with the inner workings and, and kind of all you know how all that gets set up and done. So thank you for sharing that. Um, what was the most unexpected thing that's happened in your career? Oh my gosh, you know the most unexpected thing that happened to me was when I was invited to come to NSF, the National Science Foundation, as a visiting division director. And this was, again, part of my work with the LTER effort at the Andrews. The Andrews site had a site review. Uh, the late Dr. Tom Callahan, who was a program officer at NSF, was the leader of that site review, and he sat across the table from me at dinner because I had given my pitch about the, the what we had been working on, what we'd accomplished, where the challenges lay, and what we saw going forward. And so he he asked me, had I ever considered going to NSF as a rotator, meaning that I would keep my alliance with Oregon State, but that I would spend time um, at the National Science Foundation on an intern, what is it, an interpersonnel agreement, an IPA, uh, a stat, you know, classification. Well, I told him that I never had, but that I soon did because in 1994, I spent a year as a division director of the then uh, Division of Biological Instrumentation and Resources. I call that division the best kept secret in the biological sciences directorate because it 
provided, among other things, the research infrastructure support for other programs in the division, in the directorate, in terms of human capital, instrumentation, community databases, that kind of thing. And in fact, that year that I was there, we did a division retreat, and we decided that really a better name for us, rather than biological instrumentation and resources, would have been a division called something like biological research infrastructure. And actually, that's what it's called, or something similar to that right now. But you asked me what the most unexpected thing. The unexpected thing was going to, going to NSF. The other part, though, was how valuable that one year was in my overall career. It was probably one of the best years of my career. I wanted, um, well, I was invited by Dr. Mary Clutter, who was the assistant director at the time, and I didn't realize it, but what she was trying to do was institute a new plan where division directors would be rotators from the community and their deputy directors would be permanent staff for continuity and institutional familiarity. The concept for rotators had been a long established successful pattern for program officers, but not at the division director level. And that was something that Mary wanted to implement. And now it's very common. It was, the most exciting, exhilarating, challenging, and exhausting year of my career. I did a lot of traveling back and forth across the country from D.C. to Oregon to other meetings across the globe. I learned so much. I learned things I didn't even realize I was learning. And I came away with an enormous set of skills and professional experiences that served me in so many ways well into my career. I had the opportunity to network and work with just an incredible constellation of individuals. I served on various panels, on boards, on advisory committees that year and then long into the future as a result of that year. Probably one of the most significant was chairing the, the A-C-E-R-E, NSF is, is famous for its acronyms, but this one is the Advisory Committee for Environmental Research and Education. And it's really one of the Mac Daddies of all of the advisory committees at NSF because it reported directly to the Director and Deputy Director of NSF, who at that time was Dr. Arden Bement. Every directorate has its own advisory committee. And then the ACER had a representative from each of those advisory committees, as well as other members who were picked specifically for their expertise and perspective. And we were a very productive ACERE, I can tell you. We wrote what we fondly report, um, referred to as the Green Report, and its official title was Transitions and Tipping Points in Complex Environmental Systems. There'd been a red report, there'd been a blue report, and someone said, well, we need a white report. And I said, nope, it's going to be the green report. And um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but it was a, a tremendous year for me. And probably it would never have come had 
uh, Tom Callahan not asked me, have you ever considered going to NSF? You know, as I look back, that year with NSF changed the trajectory of my career. And I also learned that when you have an experience like that, when you come back to your home institution, you no longer fit into the box that you left. Because it wasn't too long after that that I began looking at other positions at other universities. And in 98, of course, I went to Colorado State to to become department head. And then in 02, I went to University of Minnesota to be dean. And my advice to anyone interested in research and education is to spend time at NSF or any other agency for that matter. I truly enjoy being immersed in Washington, D.C. And it would, it was, sometimes you need that out-of-the-box random question that you're least expecting to, you know, really catapult you into something like that. Tom Callahan's question being the case in point. And then you need a family who's fully supportive of you and your aspirations. But that that one point about not fitting into the box when you come back, that was why when I had that new department head position to fill, I went back to that one individual who had already expressed an interest in being a department head at another institution. He had won that job. He had successfully competed for it. And I knew he was going to leave if he didn't, wasn't able to address the kinds of challenges that he now was ready to take on. And I think that, that coupling of the opportunity and the resource never would have come to my thought thing process if I hadn't realized that I had lived through the same thing. Because when I came back from NSF, I was a different person and I needed new challenges. So whenever I worked with faculty and colleagues going forward, I always tried to capitalize on where they were and what they were looking at, what they were excited by, and what opportunities were they willing and ready to achieve and accept. Um, so the kinds of things that you, you come away with from a year at NSF, in my case, or a year anywhere, um, they're difficult to measure, but they are at the same time um, simply immeasurable because of the big long-term impact that they have on a person's career. That's, that sounds momentous, you know, that all, that all of that happened in such a short period of time, just one year. It did. And again, because of the support of my family, I was able to go for that one year. Mary wanted me to go, Dr. Mary Clutter, excuse me, wanted me to go for longer. Um, but in our individual case, that wasn't a possibility, but uh, my husband and I talked about it, and he, I remember we went to lunch, and he said, you really want to do this, don't you? And I said, I really would, but I know it's going to be hard. And he said, well, then we'll find a way to make this work, and we did. I went back and forth. I had a schedule. It was set up ahead of time, um, and it was a very... Um, 
it, it was a phenomenal year in my career. It, it truly was, if I go back and think. And I, I, you know, that's the value of doing this kind of, of podcast interview because it gives you a reason to think in a way about your past and the trajectory of your career that you may not necessarily have, have thought about. So I, I've appreciated that. No, and thank you very much for sharing that all with our listeners and readers. Um, what are you working on right now? Well, I'm retired, but I'm staying active. I'm reviewing research proposals and book proposals. And most recently, I've contributed to two separate efforts looking at the long-term effects of the LTER program from that perspective of research information management. The first volume was entitled Long-Term Ecological Research, Changing the Nature of Scientists. And it's edited by Mike Willigan and uh, Lawrence Walker. And Changing the Nature of Scientists is significant because what did it, how did working as part of an active network rather than an individual PI or researcher at a site how did that change your mindset? How did you view your work differently? Um, and that's a, I would recommend people read that. I, I find it very interesting. I like my chapter too, but that's not why I'm suggesting you read it. And the second one is still being worked on. It's a volume of essays, and the editors are Bob Wade and Sharon Kingsland. And they're still waiting on a couple of other authors to put their finishing touches on their efforts. But the working title is something along the lines of the challenges and accomplishments of long-term research, new perspectives on the past, the present, and the future of ecological science. And I'm very hopeful that it's going to be forthcoming. My chapter was a retrospective over the last four decades of information management. Um, and that was, that was a fun chapter to write. It took some effort. But it, it's really asking what... What does the past owe the future? Or, or more specifically, what does the present owe the future? Because when you're investing in managing data for future users, you may not be the one that is going to accrue that benefit. But you are the one who's laying the platform and creating the scaffolding so that the long-term investment in those data can be actualized and, and used um, and built upon going forward. So it was fun. That's fantastic. I, I recall about the, um, about the first uh, LTER book. Uh, they mm -hmm. were so expansive in the, in the coverage that it was very difficult to find someone to, to review that book because um, the people who were intimately involved um, with the network had, had mostly contributed um, in one way or another or reviewed. Exactly. I mean, they were, they were what is it, They're held captive by their success, you know? I mean, for the network to be as effective and as far-ranging, it is difficult to find people that, that aren't aware and, or at some level involved. And I think the value of both of those volumes is that it created a lens um, through which to look at the, the LTER network. The, and I'm, I'm excited about 
the the future. Um, you know, four decades is a phenomenal track record for individual sites. And those sites have not all stayed. NSF is rigorous in their review. So the NSF site reviews, uh, they were not at all bashful. If a site wasn't doing what it said it was going to do, it was either put on probation or it was terminated. So, and you're talking about a lot of money and a lot of people and a lot of lives. Um, but they realized that the essence of NSF's portfolio is always going to be excellence. So you had to do excellent science and you had to work as part of a functioning network. Um, and some sites understood that better than others. And some PIs understood that better than others. And there's a self-selection, I believe, that comes from the people that want to work in that collaborative, synthetic, uh, transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. You, you come up with the, the adjective. Um, way. It's, it's a different kind of thing than having a single investigator at his or her lab bench or in her, his or her field plot, uh, working individually and singularly. So I agree. Lastly, if, if you were entering graduate school, uh, is there anything you would study differently or that you would, um, focus on now or, or would you do everything as you did it originally? I, you know, I don't know whether I would, if, if I would change very much. I mean, the, the types of things that you would avail yourself of with the, the new technology and everything, obviously you would, you would have a much, uh, a broader portfolio. But in terms of the overall direction and the overall way I got to work with people, um, you know, I, I, it's, it was very gratifying and it still is. And I've, I've always felt that what I've enjoyed the most was helping others achieve their potential and to find ways to advance the group by moving forward and working within the LTER, working, you know, within the information management community. Um, th- that provided me with a, a sort of a ladder whose success and accomplishment and great enjoyment that, as I said in the very beginning, I never could have imagined how much fun I had. Well, that sounds like a great note to leave it on. Dr. Stafford, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to share my experiences. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.